My name is Aaron Stein, and I am the Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. Hello, and welcome to The Warcast. Today, I'm talking to Ankit Panda, who is a Stanton Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Ankit, it's good to have you on the show. Hey, Aaron. Good to, good to be with you in the new year. Happy New Year to you. And if it's the new year, we are obviously going to be dealing with a lot of things coming out of North Korea. They seem to make a habit of talking a lot, um, or at least releasing reports around the new year. But right before uh, New Year's Eve, there were multiple reports coming out of South Korea is that there's been an uptick or at least a, a resumption or start of the North Koreans actually flying drones into South Korean airspace, which seems quite provocative. Can you give the listeners a little bit of context about what's been happening? Yeah, so this was a pretty significant, I think, uptick in inter-Korean tensions. Uh, I mean, first, I think we should start with the context, which is that going back to around September 2022 or so, the two Koreans have, uh, have been in this tit-for-tat spiral where each side will carry out a show of force in response to something the either did, which then prompts a further show of force by the other side. Just a classic spiral um, between between the two Koreas. So that leads up then into this December incursion across the military demarcation line, the MDL, uh, which is the inter-Korean boundary effectively. So North Korea flew multiple drones, uh, five or six drones, into South Korean airspace proper. Uh, in fact, this was so serious that air traffic, civilian air traffic, was grounded at Incheon International Airport at Gimpo uh, in Seoul. Uh, for, for listeners who might not know South Korean geography, Seoul, metropolitan area of around 25 million people, is located pretty close to the MDL. It's in the northern part of South Korea. So overall, it's a pretty serious incursion. This isn't the first time North Korea has flown drones across uh, the MDL, but it is the first time they've done this in this con- concentrated way with multiple drones. And as I'm sure Warcast listeners are aware, this has been a concern in recent years, right? We can talk about the 2019 Abkai Kureis attacks in Saudi Arabia, for instance, where multiple drones firing uh, you know, f- launching or flying across sovereign airspace could very easily be interpreted as the start of potentially a limited attack. That's not what was going on here. The South Koreans sort of followed standard operating procedures. But given that tensions were high, this is exactly the kind of thing that I don't want to see between North Korea and South Korea. It's, it's exactly the kind of thing that could be misinterpreted uh, as a limited attack. So the South Korean scrambled aircraft, uh, they actually lost a light, um, a light attack fighter uh, in the scrambles that took place after this incident. Um, and the other piece of context that's important here is that in January 2021, uh, Kim Jong-un laid out a set of military modernization objectives. Uh, now, some of these objectives are pretty big, uh, you know, new ICBMs, multiple reentry vehicles for intercontinental missiles, tactical nuclear weapons. But he did include reconnaissance drones in that. Uh, and so right before the year ends, the North Koreans sort of demonstrate that they've made some progress in this area by flying drones across. That um, you know comes amidst a very busy 2022 in terms of DPRK uh, missile tests, which I think culminated with a series of missile tests uh, either on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. How has that contributed to these tensions that's been going on between the two Koreas and with the backdrop of the drone incident? Yeah, so you know the word test is actually no longer appropriate to, to describe most missile events out of North Korea, right? It used to be the case that when North Korea launched a missile, it was a test. They were developing new capabilities. They were qualitatively advancing their nuclear deterrence. So they needed to make sure that the missiles that they relied on as their delivery systems actually performed as they needed to. In 2022, what we've seen is that the vast majority of North Korean missile events are exercises. They, they are a missile power. They operate large missile forces and they carry out exercises. So these um, buzzer beater launches that took place right before the New Year's, for instance, uh, are part of the Korean People's Army's winter training cycle, which begins every year uh, about at the end of November, carries on into into January and February. And usually in the past, this this period would be 
correlated with a lower amount of missile activity because they'd be carrying out large-scale conventional military exercises. But now it seems that they are incorporating missile launches into these activities. Now, I, I can't give you a final tally for how many missiles North Korea launched in 2022 just because there's debates about what exactly constitutes uh, you know, a, a ballistic missile in this context. But I feel pretty confident saying that they launched over 80 independent uh, individual projectiles uh, in the year, including one day when they launched more missiles in a single 24-hour period than they did in their previous highest record, busiest year of missile launching, which was 2019 when they launched 27 missiles. So the qualitative nature of the North Korean missile program, I think, has gone through a pretty significant shift in 2022. And I suspect we're sort of seeing a new baseline being established for what might be considered a new normal going into 23. So speaking of 2023, as you discussed in your previous answer, the North Koreans are usually pretty explicit in their goals for the upcoming year. And you can basically mark off their progress versus the plenum report that Kim Jong-un puts out uh, in and around the new year every every year. He did not disappoint. So there was a new report this year. What jumped out to you for North Korea coming up 2023? Yeah. So, you know, the way I go about North Korea analysis, and I think maybe my first two answers kind of gave this away, is, is I like to establish a baseline context, which helps you sort of appreciate the change that's taking place. So let's compare this year's New Year's plenum report to last year's, right? Uh, January 1st, 2022, the world woke up to headlines saying North Korea was about to focus on the economy in 2022. And then a couple days later, North Korea launches a new MARV-capable ballistic missile. That's a maneuverable reentry vehicle, right? And then the whole year was just full of missile launches. This year, it's the exact opposite. You know, very little on the economy, much more on, on nuclear weapons. I mean, if I had to sort of sum up the the plenum report that just came out, it's basically nuclear first, nuclear everything, uh, right? Kim Jong-un is calling for a, quote, exponential increase in nuclear warhead production. I say take that seriously, not literally. Uh, he's calling for the development of a um, new ICBM capable of rapid counterstrikes. Uh, in my opinion, that's almost certainly a solid propellant ICBM. They actually carried out a test of a large diameter solid propellant engine that looks like it belongs on an ICBM in the final weeks of December 2022. So there's a clear story we can sort of draw here, which is that the Eighth Party Congress modernization goals that I talked about back in January 2021, the North Koreans have made good progress, but they haven't actually accomplished all of those goals. The other thing to look forward to is we are almost certainly going to get a uh, space launch attempt in April uh, for a military reconnaissance satellite. The North Koreans carried out a bunch of tests in 2022 testing um, low Earth orbit satellite optics and attitude control and things like that. So they are working towards, I think, inserting their first actual useful payload into orbit, uh, into low Earth orbit. So that will happen around that date. They've actually already put the April date out in a statement. Uh, so that is not really guesswork. Uh, it will probably be around April 15th, which is Kim Il-sung's birthday, the Day of the Sun, one of the most prominent uh, holidays on the North Korean calendar. Uh, they have carried out space launches around that date in the past. Uh, the other thing, of course, is tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, 2022 was a bit of waiting for Godot with the North Korean nuclear test that never came. Um, my assessment continues to be that they will carry out a nuclear test. Uh, we will probably not have tactical warning of when that will happen, but we have good strategic warning in that they have many reasons to carry out such a test to develop increasingly more compact and lighter nuclear warheads for 600 millimeter rocket artillery systems, long range cruise missiles that physically cannot accommodate their existing warhead designs. Um, that said, you know, there's a lot of interesting sort of optimization problems that Kim has to contend with, I think. This whole idea of exponentially increasing warhead production would be nice if it were possible. North Korea is, of course, very constrained, particularly in its mount, uh, in its plutonium stocks, which it has a single gas graphite reactor that can uh, produce spent fuel rods for. Uh, 
plutonium reprocessing. Um, and all else being equal, Kim has to decide how many warheads he's going to assign to sort of tactical nuclear weapons versus strategic weapons uh, to uh, hold at risk targets in the United States. So the answers to these questions, I think, will become clearer as North Korea develops uh, these capabilities. But I think what remains amply clear is going into 2022 is that there is no backing down at this point for North Korea. Uh, Kim Jong-un is not, you know, his his foot is fully on the accelerator um, if his father's policy was military first for Kim at this point, it really seems to be nuclear weapons first. Uh, he is all in on nuclear development. Yeah, I mean, just to expand a little bit, you know, the technology is to point a camera back at Earth are pretty similar to what you would need for those MIRVs um, that you were talking about earlier. Uh, and the short range systems with the, a new warhead for, for a tactical nuclear weapon system that we saw so many tests of uh, also makes sense in the context of the tactical nuclear weapons goals, which brings me to my final question that we that for the, for the listeners here is that there's been some clearly some domestic fallout of DPRK militarization and bellicosity for South Korea, and obviously when there's domestic fallout and there's sort of a problem well, in South Korea, you, you feel it also in the United States because of the close partnership and alliance between the two countries. Can you talk a little bit about how this is reverberating in South Korea and perhaps what it means for the United States? The first thing to say is that there is a lot of interest right now in South Korea in acquiring nuclear weapons among the public, uh, right? Public opinion surveys have shown support in excess of 70 percent, uh, both among progressives and conservatives who have different reasons but similar logics for supporting nuclear weapons acquisition. Uh, this, of course, isn't endorsed by the government. But within the government right now, which is a conservative-led government, uh, there are certainly individuals who are sympathetic to the idea of acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, that said, uh, South Korea remains a U.S. treaty ally, recipient of extended deterrence assurances. 28,500 troops remain on the Korean peninsula. There are regular dialogues between the two sides on what it takes to deter North Korea, what kinds of so-called strategic assets the United States can forward deploy to the Korean peninsula to better deter North Korea. Um, the problem is, I think South Korea is finding itself without a good answer to its North Korea problem. The North Koreans are willing to accept much greater amounts of risk uh, than, the, than the South Koreans are. The North Koreans are willing to make life very difficult for South Korea along a number of axes, right? Everything from hacking cryptocurrency exchanges to flying drones across the MDL to launching missiles every other day into the East Sea. North Korea is not a pleasant neighbor for a country like South Korea to live with. Um, the answers, though, for this problem are not quite clear, right? Deterring things like North Korea flying drones across the MDL is not something that can happen with massive amounts of conventional military power. And in my opinion, it can't really happen with nuclear weapons, right? I think a good analogy is actually India's problem with Pakistan, where India has nuclear weapons, but that has done very little to sort of spare India from Pakistan-based terrorist groups kind of wreaking havoc across the international boundary and in Kashmir, for instance. So the North Korea-South Korea situation is similar, albeit not exact. And so what's happening right now, I think, is a process of South Korea ultimately learning to live with its very annoying neighbor that has a lot of nuclear weapons that have now given it a newfound confidence, right? Scholars call this, uh, in some ways, the, the stability and stability paradox, which I think is slowly starting to manifest on the Korean peninsula. The thing that I worry about is the, the possibility for uh, inadvertent crises or conflicts breaking out, right? So this drone incident uh, being misinterpreted after weeks or months of spiral behavior between the two Koreas as the start of an armed attack by North Korea is, in my opinion, not too far-fetched. So going into the new year, this is something that I'd keep my eyes on. Uh, the other thing is going to be increasing asks by South Korea of the United States for certain forms of 
reassurance that the United States, I think, won't be super enthusiastic about things like um, nuclear sharing, uh, nuclear planning consultations, exercises where U.S. nuclear operations and exercises feature more prominently. These have traditionally been uncomfortable areas for the United States to engage with uh, any of our allies on, right? But, but increasingly, I think South Korea feels that something has to give. Either the United States has to put unprecedented forms of reassurance on the table, or increasingly the prospect of South Korea building its independent nuclear deterrent will become more credible. You know, my view is that there are lots of good reasons that South Korea won't go down that path. Uh, proliferation isn't something, uh, you know, it's not a decision to be taken lightly by any country, including South Korea. But um, this is sort of where the alliance stands uh, as, as North Korea advances its capabilities. Ankit, couldn't agree more. And thank you for joining the Warcast. 